This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Technology continues to play an increasingly prevalent role in our daily life, and criminals and terrorists can use this trend to their advantage, posing an even bigger threat to civil liberty and national security. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, is mobilizing a wide range of advanced scientific techniques and operational technologies to help counter terrorism and criminal threats. Overseeing the Bureau's efforts in this area is its science and technology branch. What are the key strategic priorities for the FBI's science and technology branch? And how does it share information? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Chris Pahoda, Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's science and technology branch. Chris, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for the invitation. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Cece DeCamp. Cece, welcome back. Thank you. So, Chris, would you provide uh, an overview of the history and mission of the FBI's science and technology branch? How does it support the overall mission of the Bureau? Absolutely. Uh, the science and technology was, branch was formed shortly after the 9-11 incident. Uh, the FBI, going through a review of its operations and how it conducted business post-9-11, saw a requirement to consolidate all of its vast science and technology programs under a unified chain of command, so to speak, or a unified leadership model so that we could better integrate resources. Uh, the STB's mission is very simple. We enable and enhance operations and investigations, you know, for our national security programs and our criminal investigative programs. So, you know, if you're looking at what science and technology branch does is we are a enterprise service provider of technological services and products where we try to enhance our ability to conduct investigations and operations. So with, with such an important mission, could you give us a sense of how your branches organize? What's the size and scale of operations and the types of experts at STV? Science and Technology Branch has three major components that comprise the branch. Uh, you're looking at our first component, which is the Operational Technology Division. The Operational Technology Division uh, operates as our research and development arm. It also conducts all of our digital forensic work, communications, uh, secure co communications, uh, digital um, digital investigative activities. Uh, we do fabrication work there. We do all kinds of different, uh, I would say, the things that people find very interesting and James Bondish <laughs> come out of our operational technology division. Our second division would be our laboratory division, which is well known and it is a renowned 
authority in the law enforcement community where all of our forensics work is done there. Uh, we are the CSI of the FBI. And what happens, we also work with our state and local and federal partners to determine standards and practices and protocols for how to collect and maintain evidence. We do, we maintain the nation's DNA database, the CODIS database, and we also do all of our ballistics work there for firearms and we do shooting reconstructions and things of that sort. And the third component would be our Criminal Justice Information Services Division and the CEGIS Division, as we call it, for to uh, make it a little more manageable, uh, the CEGIS division is our outward-facing law enforcement liaison component. The CEGIS division provides a number of services and products to the law enforcement community across the country and for international partners where we manage vast amounts of data, information. Uh, we provide them with database services on a national level. We do all the national gun screening we, do, we run the National Cr Criminal Information Center. Uh, we do all of the work when you hear the old uh, television show say, consult IAFIS. Oh, yes. We run what used to be IAFIS, which is now the next generation identification system. So we do all the fingerprint work as well. And those are some of the major programs out of uh, the three divisions. We also, as a fourth area, we run the Terrorist Explosive uh, Devices Analysis Center in the Huntsville uh, area where that is a government-wide service provider for counter improvised explosive device activity around the world. Great. I'd like to transition to your specific role. Uh, would you tell us more about your duties and responsibilities as the executive assistant director of, of FBI's science and technology branch? Absolutely. So it's a, uh, I'm honored to serve in this role. Uh, what I find my main role to be is to help provide strategic leadership and vision for the branch and to figure out how the branch best fits in with the rest of the FBI's mission sets. The FBI is broken into six primary branches of which the science and technology branch is one of them. Two of the branches are the national security branch and the criminal cyber and response branch. We, there are primary operational customers where we do most of our national security work and our criminal investigative work. And what we try to do is maintain good strategic alignment. The STB, uh, Science and Technology Branch, is comprised of about 6,000 staff members. Okay. So we're the largest single component that the FBI manages and maintains, and we are that universal and, and enterprise-wide service provider for the rest of the FBI. So in that instance, I, I try to maintain that alignment, and I try to make sure that we are operating in good partnership and that our services and that our products meet the mission requirements of the FBI. That's wonderful. So, you know, regarding your portfolio, uh, the branch leadership and your responsibilities and duties, what are your, say, top three management challenges that you face? How have you sought to address those challenges? Well, if you, if you look, the challenges are very broad and varied, given the FBI's very broad and varied mission scope. First is the rapidly moving pace of technology. What we find is technology is, is developing and deploying faster and faster, and it's challenging our ability to maintain pace and maintain a competitive edge. And if we can keep the competitive edge, it's a matter of how long we can maintain that competitive edge. We also look at integrating mission resources across the enterprise, and I'm talking about the FBI, and then the FBI as part of the national security 
apparatus that for the United States government, as well as the FBI as a partner and leader in the law enforcement community, not only domestically, but internationally. And we look at ways to where we can anticipate using technology to counter future threats. Mm -hmm. Basically, what I do on a day-to-day basis is I ask my people to identify and develop solutions for problems that don't really exist just yet. So a little bit of clairvoyance with the, <laughs> with the genius of the very, very skilled and very dedicated scientific cadre that we have. Wow. So interesting. So tell me, uh, tell us, what, what has surprised you most in your current role? When I first came on duty uh, with the science and technology branch, uh, the complexity of the mission it was the overall complexity and and the scope of what the science and technology branch has been asked to do, is doing, and will be asked to do. So it was just it's, it was an enormous change from having more of a dedicated focus on a program versus being that enterprise wide service provider. Uh, what we also found was that you know our ability to maintain that competitive edge to be the uh, counter to threats, national security threats, criminal investigative activities, very daunting. Now I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Could you describe your career path for our listeners? Absolutely. Uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, I spent uh, six years of active duty in the United States military with the U.S. Air Force. Mm-hmm. And what I did is I picked up a very specialized technical field called metrology. It's the system of measurement the system of quantifying the world around us and assigning accuracy and uncertainty to various quantities and various parameters to, ver- you know, to when we tell you that your thermometer is accurate within 0.001 degrees centigrade, there are standards and there are testing protocols that, as an example. So that's the, that's the system and the science of measurement is metrology. So, and, and when I was in the Air Force, uh, I learned uh, basically everything I knew at the time on a technological basis, as well as on how to be a good leader of people and a good follower of leaders. So uh, I spent six years active duty, as I said, and then I uh, left uh, active duty, honorable discharge, of course. (laughs) Uh, And I was very fortunate to gain a position with NASA and uh, work at the Kennedy Space Center in support of the space shuttle program. Uh, The metrology field was very specialized at the time, and the U.S. Air Force was the only place you could obtain that formalized training and people used to send from other countries and the private industry would pay the Air Force to send people to their schools. So NASA, of course, was a very sought after uh, field. So I was able to secure a position there, worked in support of the space shuttle program for about five years. And uh, I was always interested in law enforcement as a career and as a vocation. So at the time, the FBI was just coming off of a three-year hiring freeze. So I was very fortunate. I applied for a position as a special agent, and I was accepted by the FBI, and I entered onto duty in 1995 and went through the new agent's training course at Quantico, Virginia, Uh, successfully completed that, of course, and uh, was assigned to the Newark field office where I worked in the counterterrorism and weapons of mass destruction area. I was there through 9-11, and, uh, you know, uh, the morning of 9-11 was one of those sea change type of incidents for me. I could see uh, the first tower strike burning from my office window. And um, 
you know, again, the, the world changed after that and the FBI changed after yeah. that. Uh, shortly after that, in 2002, February 2002, I went to FBI headquarters as a counterterrorism program manager for international terrorism, both domestic and around the world. Uh, spent probably it was way too many years at FBI headquarters by, by a lot of people's standards. But in about 2005, I went to Washington field office, worked in a counterintelligence area, worked very closely with our intelligence community partners, and uh, also was promoted into a uh, position where I was the chief security officer for our second largest field office, our Washington field office, and oversaw all of the security technical programs and things of that sort. Uh, moved to the Terror Screening Center, which is the government's single consolidated counterterrorism screening and watch listing function, domestic and international, maintains the infamous no-fly list. Mm -hmm. It maintains all of our watch listing and screening for border screening, aviation screening, maritime screening, things of that sort. Uh, spent some time there before I went to the Buffalo Division where I was then the special agent in charge of all FBI operations for Western New York. You know, from ranging from national security to cyber to crim, I was also the FBI's spoke per spokesperson, and I was also our, our the chief liaison between federal, state, local, uh, our, our public servants, communities, things of that sort. Um, received a call from our then deputy director saying, hey, we would like you to come back and actually be the director of the terror screening center, at which time I returned and was very honored to be in that role because then you were the head of a multi-agency organization that was a primary part of the United States government's counterterrorism function. Spent a few years there, and one morning I got a very uh, surprising call. One of, the, one of the folks outside said, hey, uh, Director Comey's on the phone, our former director. And I said, yeah, sure. Okay. It actually was Director Comey. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, when the director calls, of course, I said, sir, what can I do for you? And he says, I'm going to change your world. And I did, well, I don't know, this is really, really good or maybe <laughs> not so good. And uh, he asked me if I would uh, consider serving as his executive assistant director for science and technology because he and I had a previous conversation about my time with NASA and what I did in the Air Force. And, and I think he was, he was confident in my ability to integrate technology and operations and investigations and bring that partnership that I was able to uh, – promote at the Terror Screening Center among all the interagency partners and bring that to the to the science and technology branch. So that's pretty much that's a, a, a career yeah. roadshow for you. So, you know, with that and in in your earlier comment to us about your your roles and responsibility around strategic leadership for the branch, I, I'd get a sense, I want to get a sense of your leadership philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, would you outline some of your key leadership principles and what makes an effective leader in your mind? Well, my leadership philosophy is based upon two words, mutual support. Everything we do has to help other people be successful, and then we hope that they will help us be successful. Everything is about teamwork, and everything is about marshalling people and resources to accomplish objectives. And I know that it happens more gracefully sometimes than others. But what we try to make sure of is that we keep the mission in mind and, and, and the mission of the FBI is, again, to uphold the Constitution and to protect American society. So all arguments at some point reach that discussion and we all kind of put our different opinions aside and, and we protect people. That's what we do. Um, as far as my approach on that, 
I take a three-layered approach. One is on an interpersonal level. I always ask of myself and then my fellow leaders is to be honest, be objective, and be considerate of others. And on an interpersonal level, that seems to get us good levels of success. I also, on an organizational level, I ask people to be accountability-based and then to be results-oriented. I don't think there's anything more unforgivable than misusing the time of our staff and of our people, and they work very hard and to make sure that we are getting results for their, their hard work and their efforts. And we also, on a professional level, I ask people to be resilient because we have tough jobs. And I ask folks to be enthusiastic because our jobs are very important and people put trust and confidence in us and to always lead by example. So hard to ask people to do things that we ourselves as leadership would not do. Mm -hmm. There are things that we don't want to do, but that doesn't matter. So in, in my mind, an effective leader is someone who can do those things and do them at the right time for the right reasons. What are the key strategic priorities for the FBI's science and technology branch? I will ask its executive assistant director, Chris Pahoda, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join us each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Chris Bahoda, Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's Science and Technology Branch. Also joining us from IBM is C.C. DeCamp. So, Chris, you know, the FBI is mobilizing a wide range of advanced scientific techniques and operational technologies that help counter terrorism and criminal threats. And you know where I want to go with this is, uh, would you outline your strategic vision and key priorities for the Science and Technology Branch? Uh, sure. Uh- Our current vision is to be the premier service provider for the FBI, for its operational and investigative needs, as well as for our intelligence partners and our law enforcement partners. And I know people will say, well, you're the only service provider for the FBI, but that's not true. I mean, across the United States government, there are some exceptional organizations that have incredible abilities and resources. And if we can't provide what the FBI requires for mission success, then our operational and investigative components have to look to our partners. And sometimes that's appropriate. And sometimes we will actually promote them to look to our partners because we can't generate a capability or maybe our capability isn't scalable enough for what the what is needed. So, but we try to be that primary, primary and premier service provider. And, you know, in some key areas right now that are very important to us in that vision would be the fields of biometrics. 
and video analytics, and of course, you know, our information technology and how we manage data and information. Yeah. So the next question I wanted to ask is, in shaping that strategic vision, what are some of the key internal and external drivers and trends that go into where you're going? Yeah. Uh, our, our primary drivers, of course, are FBI national priorities, which are then derived from, you know, the United States government's priorities delegated to the Attorney General of the United States and then to the FBI director. So we look at our FBI priorities, and then we look at national threat priorities. Mm -hmm. National threat priorities are evaluated at least annually, if not more often, and we try to make sure that we are in line with and supporting directly those priorities. And we look at identified crime problems. We look at trending of crime problems, and we look at emergent crime issues that are starting to develop in our communities. And we try to make sure that, again, we provide our partners and our customers and our investigative cadre with proper tools and products to identify those threats and counter those threats through technology as much as we can. But it all always comes back to old-fashioned investigation and, and, and police work. You mentioned biometrics. Uh, what is a biometrics analysis and how does it assist you in your work? Uh, are there any innovations in this area that you'd like to share? Absolutely. Uh, biometrics is just another way that human beings interact. And we have two age-old questions that we ask about each other. First of all, who are you? And are you who you say you are? And we've tried to figure this out about each other for centuries, whether it was through secret handshakes, passcodes, different types of identic identifiers or authenticators. And as the world has matured and society has matured and technology has made concurrent maturation, our ability to authenticate each other has also changed. And biometrics is a way of the future because what we found is we entered into more of a digital age. Biographic information is much more easily counterfeited. Where we used to carry documents, we had papers. Well, those documents and papers can now be can be counterfeited and copied with precision that you've never seen before. So we had to move to a different authentication scheme. And generally, authentication can be broken down into three areas. It's something you know, it's something you have, or something you are. And what we find is that we try to use combinations of those three areas, and biometrics being the something you are is the way of the future. It's the modalities of iris scans, fingerprints, DNA, things that those are the areas that people are most familiar with. And what we're trying to figure out is how to do this in a way that we are using technology to make it to where we can do this better, we can do it faster, and we can do it with less resources. But we also have to make sure that we're doing it in line with people's privacy, civil liberties, their constitutional rights. So there's an imperfect balance that we maintain on security and how we have to identify people because uh, I do believe that there are people who would continue to secrete their identity, to maybe misrepresent who they are for interests that don't align with the United States government or are not good for our communities. Uh, we also look at other more esoteric things for experimental reasons, uh, like, such as walking gait analysis, how you walk. Everyone walks a little bit differently. Uh, voice analysis. We also, uh, people laugh at this one, but we look at people's, the shape of their ears. 
because the first thing a lot of folks do when they see a camera is they turn away and we get a really good shot of their ears. And it doesn't work on the ladies as much because of the longer hairstyles for so, most of the ladies. But a lot of folks, we can get a good shot of their ears. And it may not be a perfect identifier, but we can use it to triangulate other identifiers to make a good identification match for an individual. Wow, that's so interesting. Yes. Uh, so what are the core capabilities of the STB's laboratory services? Would you tell us more about how STB engages in scientific analysis? Yeah. The, the lab, as I said earlier, is our premier law enforcement laboratory. Uh, the FBI laboratory, it, it's, it's looked to for leadership and it's looked for uh, its ability to help set standards and, and provide uh, scientific uh, approaches and, and protocols that the rest of the laboratories around the uh, law enforcement community adopt and use. Uh, for biometrics, again, I go back to the biometric area. I mean, we do maintain the CODIS database, mm-hmm. which is the national DNA database. And uh, we do a lot of latent print work where we go and we extract fingerprints from crime scenes or we also we extract uh, latent prints from explosive devices. You'd be surprised how many times we get identification from latent prints from explosive devices around the world, your improvised explosive devices, because people put them together and they forget to, they don't wear gloves. And they think that the explosion will the destroy their yeah. prints where the prints are pretty persistent. Uh, we also do a lot of DNA casework, and uh, the FBI's lab also does the forensic response. We talked about uh, scientific response and analysis. The evidence response teams that we run, like I said, the CSI component, uh, they deploy to certain sites. We just had uh, multiple teams doing a landfill excavation in the Jacksonville area looking for a missing person. Uh, unfortunately, we were unsuccessful, but they moved hundreds of tons of refuse or, you know, uh, landfill. And, uh, you know, they do forensic analysis of that sort. Uh, We do the crime scene documentation, crime scene rescaling and rebuilding. They do models of crime scenes. Uh, One of their more impressive uh, crime scene remodeling projects was the uh, shooting in Aurora, Colorado. They have a scaled-down model of the theater. They can show you the trajectory of all rounds that were fired, and they can show you how things impacted everywhere. It's, it's very impressive what they do. Uh, we do our firearms and tool marks where we do our ballistics testing. And uh, we also do counterterrorism forensic work when, when our partners with the Department of Defense or other law enforcement, when they collect documents and artifacts from, say, we're in war theater areas, they bring them back to us and we do analysis on those to those documents and materials to see if we can identify people and look for further investigative leads or predictive or preventative information. And again, I talked about our uh, Terrorist Explosive Devices Analysis Center, which is again a, a government-wide service provider. We take in all kinds of imp- improvised explosive device materials or the devices themselves. We deconstruct them. We look for the build signatures. We try to identify trends in bomb making. And we use that information to inform the community of bomb technicians and our and our explosive ordnance disposal partners to make sure that they understand the new trends in explosives work and that we can keep them informed as a, a safety issue as well. You know, Chris, you just you, you kind of gave us a hint at what the uh, the operational response capacity of the forensic lab is. I'd like to dig a little deeper. Could you tell us um, basically what kind of an event? How would that? How would they uh, the FBI forensic lab get involved? And what exactly? What types of responses? And what are they doing? Uh, I'll give you a real quick example: sure. the uh, the tragedy of the shooting in Las Vegas. Yeah. Uh, 
any event that occurs of that magnitude in the nation, one, if not all three of the science and technology branch components will be engaged for direct investigative support, forensic work, field communications, and other type of technology-based activities. Uh, we will come in. We will do the uh, digital forensic and information extraction from the devices that were found. That's our operational technology division. We will go and collect all of the evidence from the hotel rooms, which should be our laboratory division. We'll do the ballistics tests on all the weapons. We'll verify the shooting path. Mm -hmm. We will do all of the types of work to reconstruct that event. Uh, the, our criminal justice information services division sets up virtual command posts via electronic channels that we can communicate with our state and local partners. We can deconflict efforts and share information for investigative leads to make sure there aren't any other activities that are maybe planned or haven't been executed yet so we can be predictive and preventative. So that's just a very quick example. Also, for our uh, operational technology division, we do all of our video analytics. Mm -hmm. Most major events these days have a video component, whether it's from just regular surveillance video, security video, dash cameras, body cameras, or just the civilian population with their smartphones and their mobile devices we're taking in video. And uh, we take in a lot of good information, a lot of good lead data, and it's another way for us to get the public to help us mm -hmm. develop that information. So that's just a very broad overview on how the divisions would respond. Oh, no, the, the, uh, the examples are great. So what types of operational technology, digital forensics, uh, surveillance, you mentioned a little bit of that, tools, the techniques, does the STB provide across the uh, FBI investigative programs? Well, primarily we look at making our investigators better at what they do. We make them faster in resolving issues, and we make sure we can do it with the best use of resources, and that is through technology. We augment our investigative and intelligence cadres. We can have them move faster, be more predictive, respond faster, and we give them that enhancement through technology. Technology is not a solution. It's part of the solution, and we do all of that while we're doing the FBI mission, of course. So we uphold the Constitution, we protect the American people, and what we try to do is make sure that we are predictive and preventative through effective surveillance, court-authorized activities. Everything we do, people like to think that we have these very broad authorities. Everything we do is court-authorized, and it's and it's it's under legal under legal uh, auspices. Uh, we provide secure communications around all areas. Uh, we provide technical support around the FBI as well to our law enforcement partners and our international partners. They call us for technical support uh, on certain issues that they feel as though they don't have that expertise, um, technical operations. Uh, a lot of things we do are of a very sensitive and or classified uh, manner in the national security realm. And, and quite honestly, we, we don't talk about those things very much openly, only because if we did, it would give the adversaries, the opponents, or the competitors knowledge and awareness, and it would take away our, our competitive edge to combat crime problems or to identify and interdict national security threats. You know, taking take a step back from your operational leadership role at the branch, you, know, you, you are, you and your branch are at the intersection between science and technology and law enforcement. How does one help the other? How do the advances in science and technology help the enforcement mission? Well, technology helps human beings be better, be faster, 
and to make more economical use of resources. That is technology. I mean, we, we do things differently now than we did five to 10 years ago, which we did different five to 10 years ago before that. And you can see advances in technology are made to enhance our lifestyle. They make human existence better. They allow us to do things that we could not do before. Unfortunately, it also allows criminals and national security adversaries to do things that they couldn't do before. It makes them better. It makes them faster. And it makes them better users of resources as well. So what we try to do is be a step ahead. We try to be as forward-looking as we can, anticipatory. And what we try to do is work through partnerships. And, and across the United States government, we find that, well, we found this after 9-11 particularly, there's no one organization anymore that has the capabilities, the skills, the resources, or the authorities to combat the complexity of the new criminal investigative environment or the new national security environment. So technology for us is a way to make our investigators and our intelligence analysts more capable. Technology will not replace them. It'll make them better, and it's part of the solution set for us. How does the FBI's science and technology branch share information? We will ask Chris Bahoda, its executive assistant director, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Chris Bahoda, Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's Science and Technology Branch. Also joining us from IBM is C.C. DeCamp. So, Chris, you mentioned prior to taking over the FBI's Science and Technology Branch, you led the Terrorist Screening Center uh, for the FBI. How did you leverage your experience at the Screening Center to help you in your current role, and how do these, role, how do these roles complement one another? Yeah, the Terror Screening Center was, a, was an outstanding assignment. And one of the things the Terror Screening Center did to help me with th my current role at the Science and Technology Branch was forming the partnerships, using technology to identify, detect, and prevent threats around the world. And that's what the Terror Screening Center was about, 24-hour counter-terrorism operations where we monitored the movement and interdicted the movement of terrorists around the world, whether it was to or from the combat zones or around to our uh, constituent partners. So using technology to do that, integrating that technology with operations uh, led me to take a similar approach in the science and technology branch where we brought in the tools of entity management, 
identity management, the use of biometrics, the use of information and data. And you notice I separate data and information. Yes. They're two separate things. A lot of people use them interchangeably. But data is pretty much what we do to see the world. Information is when we add context and we add formatting and we add certain elements. So we were able to take those principles, bring them to the science and technology branch. Um, again, I look at the merging of biometrics and biographics through technology, the ability to disseminate this information the ability to apply analytics to the information, derive relationships, make sure that we understood what was going on and how we could use that information to be predictive and preventative. Um, like I said, the interagency setting of the TSC moved right into the science and technology branch because it is a partnership. I am a service provider, as I was at the Terra Screening Center for the United States government. Same thing for the science and technology branch. We were able to bring the same customer service and operational support mentality to that. And also uh, the, use of, the, the use of broad information technology systems. The Terra Screening Center was a very large information technology-based program. We managed a lot of information around the world. We also managed information with our partners around the world from the law enforcement and intelligence communities. And our operational technology division, our criminal justice information services division, and our laboratory manage massive amounts of data and information. Uh, just as an example, our operational technology division moves about seven to eight petabytes of data per year. And everybody says, oh, a petabyte, is that good? Is, is that, what is that? Um, pretty much it's a, it's a one with 15 zeros after it. And, and what we try to do is make sure that that data moves in a very efficient, direct, accurate fashion that we can apply analytics to. Uh, for our Criminal Justice Information Services Division, we run the National you know, Criminal Informa Crime Information Center. And that database queries about 13 million times per day on the average. And every response, the system was built with such expert uh, you know, system engineering that every response is less than 0 0.05 seconds back to that police officer who may be on the side of a road trying to figure out who he's, who he's working with. So, again, management of information, data, services, and products. I mean, you kind of touched on it. I'm wondering if you had anything to follow up. And it's more mainly, I like the distinction between data and information, and that information provides the context that data doesn't necessarily have. But are there any other sort of information sharing efforts you're doing with either the DOJ proper, the department, or other uh, community communities out there? Absolutely. I'll, I'll focus on, again, the Criminal Justice Information Services Division. For our one of our larger data managers, uh, we do the annual crime statistics for the United States. Uniform crime reporting, the FBI through its uh, work at the uh, CGIS facility, we take information from approximately 16,000 different entities. We aggregate that information. We put it into, again, formatting. We give it context. We look for trend data. And we use that information to then reinform the law enforcement community at large. And that community uses this data as an authoritative source of statistical information to identify crime trends. Where, do, where are they going to deploy resources? What do they need to combat crime in our communities? So a very large-scale uh, statistical endeavor. Chris, government executives are demonstrating measurable improvements in programs by integrating data and data analytics into decision-making. And you spoke a little bit about uh, analytics uh, just now. 
uh, would you elaborate more on how you're using analytics specifically, uh, you know, to improve services and quality uh, and, and perhaps identify new solutions and services? Well, our lives have become exceptionally digitized mm-hmm. and datafied. We live our lives out loud on the Internet. We shop on the Internet. We bank on the Internet. Our information is, is very, very available. So what we try to do is a few things. One, we try to make sure we have people aware of the new world that they live in. And what we try to do is explain to them that the data that is available to the, from their lives provides a lot of information about them. So just like we try to teach our children, hey, look both ways before you cross the street, we try to tell folks, look in every direction before you get on the Internet. It's a new world for a lot of folks, and it's not as uh, innocent as it once was. Uh, where we do is we take data that we collect through, again, our, our, our lawful authorities, and we try to derive new relationships between data sets. We look for ways that data sets correlate. How do we layer these data sets to get new views of the world that we didn't have before? Mm-hmm. And how to determine what we didn't know or maybe what we did know, and we didn't know we knew it. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding also is that it's helping the U.S. government, the FBI first, and then the broader government to say that we have to have systems that are more interrelatable. The world, there's too much information right now. We're in information overload, and what we're trying to find is that we have to analyze things closer to the edge of collection of data mm-hmm. as opposed to bringing the data back in the regular model of we collect, we receive, we store we retrieve, we analyze, and through that more traditional sense, uh, what we're trying to do now is move to a what we call edge analytics. At the point of collection, we have an analytical construct that will review and sort through data, whether it's video, whether it's uh, binary, whether it's you know data-based, and tell us what we should know and cull out other information that maybe isn't part of the investigation or doesn't fall under our authority to collect. Now, circling back just a, a moment, you talked about the Criminal Justice Information Services Division, CJIS, uh, having had a great opportunity recently to tour that facility uh, out in West Virginia. Um, there's a number of key programs there that are, you know, it's just very, very interesting. You spoke of, of some of that. Can you talk a little bit about CJIS, uh, a little bit more about that and uh, how it supports the mission and the purpose of the science and technology branch? Absolutely. CJIS is our largest single component across the entire FBI. Uh, the CJIS... Yeah, the CJIS division is, is almost a small town unto itself. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the CJIS division uh, provides that law enforcement support network through its information services, through its products, through what we can tell our law enforcement partners about the law enforcement community and our operating environment. We also generate a lot of law enforcement leadership initiatives through the CJIS construct. We run the Advisory Policy Board, which is a national-level decision-making and steering committee that sets the course for how law enforcement does its business. So CJIS houses and facilitates that type of a function. We have other, I would say, leadership functions that CJIS is part of. We work very closely with uh, Indian Reservation authorities. We work very closely with... Uh, other components, uh, probably some other components that you wouldn't think about, but, you know, the crime statistics areas in every state. We work with those folks. I mean, it's just a very broad mission. We work very closely on the, uh, we also territorial authorities. 
So we take that information from all those areas. We try to make sure that we include everybody so that we get a better picture of the challenges that hit law enforcement from all different angles across the operating environment. So CEGIS is our primary outward-facing liaison, law enforcement leadership, law enforcement services component. So the Biometric Center of Excellence is a joint project with the Department of Defense. Would you tell us more about the mission and activities of uh, the Biometric Center of Excellence? Uh, and how do law enforcement and military needs intersect? Uh, what are some of the economies of scale achieved by this joint effort? Yeah, yeah, the concept was created in about the 2007 timeframe. And our DOD partners working with uh, CGIS and, and FBI leadership at the time found that, again, moving toward biometrics as being the future of how we identify and authenticate each other. Uh, they found a need for a unified position and a unified approach. And what better way to do that than to form a center, a biometric center. And of course, everyone likes excellence. So <laughs> we got to that point of a biometric center of excellence with our DOD partners. And what we seek to do there is extend our biometric technical capabilities. Our Department of Defense has remarkable capabilities and they have remarkable people just like the law enforcement community. And we're better together than we are apart. So what we did was we figured out ways to bring them to us because DOD is, or Department of Defense is much larger, of course, than the FBI. They have much more uh, disparate functions and, and, and uh, locations around the world. So for them to come to us to, it, to form this center was more efficient, more effective. And when we found that, it strengthened our ability to collaborate on forensic science when it comes to biometrics and also to advance biometric technology. Uh, we're driving national biometrics initiatives from that center. And we're improving our ability to promote national security for the United States. Uh, the Department of Defense uses the technology that we develop jointly. They collect biometric information around the world, uh, whether it's in battle theater space or whether it's in other liaison space where we work with other uh, partners and, and other international uh, entities. So we get a lot of information back through our DOD partners. Uh, we're also, again, trying to answer that question. DOD does it uh, overseas. Who are you? Yeah. And are you who you say you are? So it's very helpful when it comes to varying uh, security measures and security initiatives. Uh, when DOD uh, also, uh, when they were in full combat operations, biometrics was the only way they could identify people they came in contact with. Again, I, I know people find this hard to believe, but there are a lot of times when folks don't want to tell you their real name <laughs> and they don't want to identify themselves. And their biometrics are the only way we could uh, say that we encountered this person two to three times on the battlefield. Or is this same person being encountered at a port of entry in the United States? So, again, it's a collaborative effort to keep our communities safe. You know, Chris, you've done a wonderful job explaining the mission of the Science and Technology Bureau and the programs and the effort you were engaging in. But none of this could happen without the people. And where I'm going with that is what are you doing to ensure you have a well-trained and technically skilled workforce? Well, on the very basic level, we partner with our human resources experts and we recruit individuals who have sought-after technical backgrounds. We use strategic hiring to identify future needs because we have good for today, mm -hmm. but I also need good for tomorrow. So that's on a very basic level. We try to do that. But what we also do is have a lot of very technical and very 
expert forums that we host and that we attend on an international basis to share ideas, look at applications of technology. Because technology, we find, is, 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 is impressive and it's very awe-inspiring. But if we can't apply it to the operational environment and if we can't apply it to a problem set, then it stays in the awesome factor to look at. We want to make sure that it's awesome to use. So we, we try to make sure that we share ideas in those forums on how to do that. And our partners bring a lot of insight. Also, that we, we send our people to extensive training. I mean, as technology, the rule of thumb used to be technology turned over every five years. We'd say that has shortened in duration now, It's probably depending on the sector of technology. So we have to keep up with or try to stay ahead of those technological advances. We send our people to a lot of training. We make sure we bring training to our people. And we try to ensure that our people are collaborating across the government, across the private sector. Partnerships with the private sector have become much more important. Uh, we find that the interests of the private sector and the government they tend to drift closer and further apart at times on different issues. Uh, what we find right now is that in some, in some areas, we are more closely aligned with our private sector partners than we've ever been. Mm -hmm. So those are just some of the ways that we're trying to maintain that highly skilled, highly technically trained workforce. What does the future hold for the FBI's science and technology branch? We will ask its executive assistant director, Chris Bahota, when a conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Chris Bahota, Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's Science and Technology Branch. Also joining us from IBM is CC DeCamp. So, Chris, I, I talk to many of my guests uh, about the use of collaboration partnerships with agencies um, and the uh, and other communities, both uh, in and out of government. But um, to what extent does collaboration and partnership drive innovation in your space? Well, what we found after the 9-11 incident in 2001 was that the world became much more complex. Certain very straightforward law enforcement approaches and law enforcement technologies were no longer capable or suitable for the new threat environment. And what we found is that collaboration was the only way to combat that complexity that was found with the new, new threat environment. We were dealing with varying levels of volatility, uncertainty complexity, confusion, and ambiguity in that post-9-11 world. And that what we found is that no one organization can handle everything. The government couldn't handle everything. And that the private sector was an untapped, in our mind, area of expertise, awareness, knowledge, resource. And the private sector benefits from a safe and secure America just as much as the United States government. So we had a lot of interests together on that. Mm -hmm. And what we tried to do over the years was form those layered, integrated approaches with our private sector partners to help us see things that maybe the government couldn't see fast enough, maybe to 
give us knowledge and awareness of things that eventually the government would, would take note of, but maybe not fast enough. The private sector has a, has a reputation for being more agile and more uh, able to shift on business issues than, of course, the United States government. So we found that collaboration with the private sector was a key to success in many areas. We've formed many strategic partnerships, and we found that by bringing our private sector partners into various dialogues, it made us better, and it also assisted our private sector partners in gaining awareness on what the United States government's strategic vision was on certain things. So everybody benefited from it, and and that's kind of the way of the future. Transitioning more to the future, would you give us a sense of some of the key trends and innovations within your area? Yeah. What we find right now is we are in a remarkable time when it comes to technology. And uh, right now, across the United States government, no conversation regarding technology is complete without at least a reference to artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. or machine learning. And this information-based technology, uh, it is still in an emergent state. It's still developmental in some areas, but we're finding remarkable promise across private sector and for certain government needs. Uh, What we find, though, is that it is still emergent in respect to how the law enforcement community would employ and use an artificial intelligence construct to to conduct its business. Uh, What we're concerned about is how would we take a decision-making construct that could impact how people's privacy, civil liberties, and constitutional rights are addressed. And it's not people making decisions about other people. And what we're finding also is that there's some level of, of maybe you can call it a lack of knowledge on how the AI construct actually makes decisions. And when we look at how law enforcement would use an AI construct, and I use that term AI construct because AI could mean a lot of different types of configurations, but how do we train it? How do we train an AI construct to make decisions? What information is it provided to draw its conclusions? What kind of algorithms are used and stacked and interacted with to come to a conclusion? And how to determine the best way to explain that in court if we try to use those decisions? Even if we use them to for lead value where we conduct investigations and we were steered in a certain direction by an AI-based decision-making tool, how do you explain that in court when we have human beings involved? Mm-hmm. So these are some of the challenges we're looking at when it comes to machine learning and the application of it. Now, there are areas we will certainly benefit from from an analytical perspective, but we're still struggling with the actual application of AI tools in the law enforcement environment. Uh, We're looking at 5G communication networks. Mm. 5G communication networks are, uh, they're coming. Uh, The velocity and volume of data that will be moved will be unforeseen and unheard of in previous communication networks. Uh, we, We will have billions of Internet of Things devices we will have – we'll be moving data in orders of magnitude more than we do now. Uh, there will be many opportunities for the smart buildings, smart cities, mesh communication networks where cars will communicate with each other as they move down the highway. Uh, a lot of different areas that we're looking at, how law enforcement will interact with this technology and not only that, but how will the criminal element or the 
national security adversary use this technology to advance their own initiatives. Uh, one last area that is of, uh, well, there are many areas, but one last primary area is quantum computing. Uh, there's a lot of talk about quantum computing, uh, depending on various estimates. It may be about 10 years away from a, a field deployable quantum system. Uh, the fear of quantum computing right now is that quantum computing, as it differs from conventional computing, will be able to theoretically bypass or defeat all of our current encryption schemes. So people are now working on what they call quantum-resistant wow. uh, uh, encryption schemes. Uh, quantum encryption will become another problem because if we can quantum decrypt, we can quantum encrypt. So then how will you defeat quantum encryption? And it's one of our other challenges. Uh, again, how do we access data? How do we collect data when it is quantum encrypted? But that is a horizon, another horizon technology that we're looking at. Just another hint at the complexity, the ever-growing complexity. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Chris, thanks for coming in today. It's a wonderful conversation. Uh, I want to ask you for one last question around advice. And what would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service? Uh, first thing I think you'd have to do is, is consider your personal goals and objectives. Do you want a career that is based upon serving the needs of the American people? Do you want to protect people? Do you want to provide services? How, what, what are your personal goals and objectives? I would also say that uh, you'd have to, and, and as early on as you can, look at your decision making. Because I, I, if we find that a lot of our younger folks have make, made certain decisions in high school and college that may not be conducive with government career requirements. So we just we ask our, our younger folks to, to take a look at what you're doing and think about where you want to be in a few years, look at those career goals and objectives, make sure they are lined up as closely as they can with your personal goals and objectives. And uh, it's a rewarding career. I, I, I say this not because I'm with the FBI, but uh, I will say that I couldn't picture a better career anywhere else. Uh, I've been very fortunate and I feel very thankful that I've had this opportunity to serve with the FBI and the United States government and the U.S. military before. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for coming in. But more importantly, Cece and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, thank you very much. And as I said, it's been an honor to, to do so. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Chris Pahoda, Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's Science and Technology Branch. My co-host from IBM has been Cece DeCamp. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.